Welcome to First They Came for the Immigrants. Immigrants and asylum seekers are under attack in the U.S., and so is our democracy. In today's episode, our host, Virginia Raymond, speaks with community organizer Deborah Alemu, talking about immigrant justice and the Black LGBTQ Migrant Project. Devorah Alemu is with is an, a community organizer um, currently working with, among others, the um, Black, Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Queer, Transgender, and Intersex um, Migrant Project, or BLMP, where L stands for the full acronym of all kinds of queer people. And um, we met um, several years ago um, through immigration immigrant organizing, immigrant youth organizing at the University of Texas. And um, you have taken your work bigger and broader (laughs) since then. Um, And um, so welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Virginia. I'm excited about this podcast and in particular our interview. Well, thank you so much. So um, tell us if you would a little bit about how you came to be working as a community organizer not just around immigration issues and immigrant rights issues, but specifically about Black and queer people as migrants, refugees, and other kinds of immigrants? I think for most community organizers, um, the initiation is often very personal. Um, I, my, my parents were refugees. I myself was undocumented. Um, and Uh, through my experience organizing with other undocumented youth in Texas around tuition equity and against deportation, um, I got introduced to the world of immigrant organizing and immigrant justice. Uh, Initially, I I co-founded an organization uh, called Undocu Black Network, um, which centered undocumented Black immigrants um, from across the Black diaspora. And more recently, I've been working with, like you introduced, uh, like you said in the introduction, BLMP, which is the Black LGBTQ Migrant Project. Um, And both of these efforts are similar in that uh, centering Black marginalized voices uh, is the goal. Um, With BLMP in particular, we have four areas of work, um, our international work, uh, where we build solidarity with Black migrants outside of the United States. Um, And the reason for that area of work is because uh, we find imperialism is the root cause of many of the issues we're trying to uplift and address. Um, And so, yeah, in order to be true internationalists, um, we have to understand that we aren't just fighting for justice here. Our liberation is bound to that of people everywhere, including back home, wherever that might be for us. And yeah, that's a core uh, area of our work for BLMP. Um, We also have some local organizing work in our hubs across the country. Our deportation defense work, um, currently we're supporting a trans uh, woman who is from Jamaica 
and she's been detained or she spent seven years of her life behind bars. Um, and, you know, this last stint has been around three years in immigration detention in Colorado. Um, and uh, we recognize how black migrants are impacted by um, anti-blackness, institutional racism, uh, and, and in, in the case of many of our community, transphobia, hom homophobia, um, all of these things converge um, as a result of imperialism and impact our people in very specific ways. So in the case of Zaza, we know um, she was criminalized in Philadelphia where she lived with her partner and um, was sent to jail. Uh, after that, you know, the local, which by the way, Philadelphia is a, supposedly a sanctuary city. Um, after that, uh, ICE, she was transferred into ICE custody um, and put in deportation proceedings. Um, she was, had to go back to Jamaica um, where it is literally illegal to be transgender. Um, and in an effort to be reunited with her family, she made another attempt to come back home. And um, ever since her reentry into the country, she's been detained in Aurora Detention Center in Colorado. So um, her story is not unique, unfortunately. We know that that's the case for hundreds and thousands of migrants across the country. Um, and yeah. This, that's one of our areas of work is around deportation defense. And specifically, we're building out something called the Malika Network so that more and more of our members and community feel like they have the skills necessary to combat deportation, um, even if they're not immigration attorneys, to understand what are ways we can bring together families and communities um, to to combat deportation, um, which is extremely violent and, um, as you know, disrupts so many people's lives. And what does the Malika project, if I'm saying that right, um, stand for or mean? So Malika uh, is a Swahili word, but is often used in a lot of, some iteration of it is used in a lot of different um, African languages. Uh, it means angel. And um, it's a network where it's sort of like a fellowship where we have um, members of BLMP um, trained through a series of like teachings or trainings uh, by other folks who've been doing deportation defense work for a long time. So some of the teachers have uh, we'll be talking about um, housing and sponsorship and others will talk about bond and parole and raising money for those um, needs. And uh, we have a black immigration attorney who's going to be talking about forms of relief that are most common, particularly for asylum seekers and recent arrivals, um, but also in general. Um, and so familiarizing people a little bit with the convoluted immigrant justice or injustice system. There's an overwhelming number of migrants who are in desperate need and immediate need. Um, 
we just saw yesterday uh, like almost 100 uh, African migrants deported. And this is every week now. The most marginalized people are put in harm's way. Um, and it is very difficult for any one organization or any handful of organizations to uh, meet the needs of everyone. So it it's super key that we organize other leaders and keep bringing people into the fold um, by in- equipping them with the knowledge and skills necessary to like feel comfortable um, that they have, that they can also contribute to the fight um, against deportation. So that's kind of the idea around the Malaika network. Um, kind of like we as an organization have, you know, X amount of resources, but by teaching more and more folks, you you are kind of like growing more limbs. Um, right. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do. Grow limbs. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think you said there were going to be four things and I want to talk more about each of these, but um, after deportation defense, was there another? Yeah, we also do a lot of narrative work. Um, Being at the intersections we're at, uh, it's really important to to reach out to more isolated communities. So organizing with um, non-migrant, Black or organizations based in the U.S. to help them understand what are the particular um, struggles of immigrants in this country, and also working with non-Black immigrant justice organizations who uh, have to understand what racial equity means to to us, and um, and then you know working with like cultural, maybe African, Caribbean, Central South American um, organizations who don't do immigration related work, but um, are definitely impacted by immigration policies. So, you know, uh, and obviously for all of these groups, making sure um, our making sure queerness and transness is uplifted and understood and and accepted, um, yeah. Uh, so narrative change, which is a lot of different things. Sure. <laughs> and and speaking of narratives and distortions in the narratives, uh, one of the biggest distortions is the idea that immigration is solely a quote unquote Latino mm-hmm. um, issue, where Latino <laughs> means <laughs> or is. Um, misinterpreted to mean to the exclusion of black people or African descendant people. And I wonder, is that something that's still going on that you still have to contend with when you work with people other than black immigrants? <laughs> you know, are people like that's not our issue or um, are, are, we, are we seeing some change finally in that? Um. Yes, there is change. Uh, it's still something we have to contend with all the time, though. Um, I think framing immigration as a non-Black issue negates the experiences of the Afro-Latinx diaspora and the rest of the Black immigrant diaspora. So, for example, uh, BLMP specifically has a committee of Garifuna leaders 
um, who are interested in organizing their community in their respective cities. Um, and so like for those like me who had a US imperialist education um, and, and weren't familiar with the Garifuna people, they are Afro-Caribbean descendants um, of formerly enslaved Africans who were displaced from the Caribbean to um, Central America. And so Garifuna people, of course, have their own language, their own culture, their own land. Um, but we see over time, greedy governments and corporations displacing them through land grabs. Um, so many Garifuna people have migrated to the United States and um, to exclude their history and their present day material reality from the immigrant justice movement sets everyone back. Um, and anytime solidarity isn't centered, society regresses. So, um, we we lose entire uh, entire communities of people when we're not um, acknowledging uh, immigration as a black issue. So, so I don't have the bird's eye view, right? As a practitioner, I see one person and then another person and another person, or sometimes groups of people. But I do not have the meta view, the bird's eye view. But it has seemed to me. Um, just from the clients I have represented, that one, um, black migrants, black people in detention, specifically immigration prisons or incarcerated, as I like to say, um, who are who are locked up, are treated a worse than and be kind of as almost an experiment, a kind of testing ground by ICE. Let's like, let's see if we can get away with this, with this particular Garifuna woman from Honduras who um, is quote unquote different than most of the other people in the detention center immigration prison that she's in. And let's see if we can isolate her and treat her differently. I think some of this is quite conscious Con conscious yeah, and some of it is not. Um, some of it is affected by perceptions that are racialized perceptions that people have that they're not necessarily always aware of. And you might remember or not, I don't know, but um, particular woman who was at Hutto, who um, ICE kept describing her as violent. <laughs> And one of the things that she did that was so-called violent was she wouldn't get up a, out of bed in the morning. She was just like not wanting to, um, she didn't want to follow the rules of the immigration prison in Hutto, but they interpreted any resistance, even completely passive resistance of not wanting to get out of bed in the morning as quote unquote violence. Um, it wasn't that she was quote unquote lazy or anything, or even particularly that she was resistant, but that she had sickle cell anemia, which caused her a great deal of pain, which the ICE officers and the private um, prison company had no, no concept about um, what it was um, and why, it, why she was in so much pain. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I see is that perception of violence and a lack of and, and ignorance, but also it has seemed to me, and again, tell me if you can tell me from a macro point of view, um, it has seemed to me that I've had a lot harder time getting my black clients 
out of immigration prison, whether they are Central American mm -hmm. um, or um, more recently from Africa, African um, asylum seekers from whether it's Ghana or Guinea or Sierra Leone, that they spend much more time mm -hmm. in detention in immigration prisons than do people from Central America and Mexico, uh, all other things being equal. Obviously people who have actual criminal records or who have been previously deported, those people across the board have a harder time getting parole. Um, but when you're talking about people who are for, here for the first time and you just compare people whose stories are similar, who have, there's no accusation of drug smuggling or tra trafficking of people or anything, that um, that ICE consistently will reject parole for black immigrants. Whereas I do, I, well, until recently, I was successful getting my uh, Central American non-black clients out on parole frequently. Is that something that, is that unique to Texas or South Texas, or do you see that other places as well? Yeah, we definitely see that everywhere. I mean, anti-blackness is global. Um, ICE is a is an extremely um, racist institution that absolutely needs to be abolished. Um, but also, uh, and BLMP holds that as an organizational value um, that there's no way for it for ICE to continue existing uh, in a way that is like kinder or more humane. Um, and, you know, you mentioned a couple of points. So for, for the woman who you said has sickle cell anemia and was sort of passively resisting because a result of her illness, um, this idea that as humans, we don't have any control over our fate and we are just supposed to follow the orders of these strange, um, deportation officers who are increasingly cruel and brutal um, is, is, is like unacceptable. It's a mindset that none of us should have. Um, so her resistance, even if it was not passive, even if it was um, not as a result of her uh, illness would still be absolutely just. Um, we should resist ICE every step of the way uh, and it isn't normal <laughs> that we're, we're just waiting uh, years on end for people to have parole. Um, it isn't normal that a judge gets to determine if somebody's case or if somebody's fear is credible or not. Um, these things are expressly a part of the imperialist project. Um, and they our excuses, this idea that, you know, we have to protect our border um, there. It's an excuse so that capitalists and the political ruling class can continue to profit off of our bodies. Every night we're detained. That's uh, for every single one of us. That's another um, X amount of dollars that goes into somebody's pockets or many people's pockets. And, you know, ICE is allotted yearly $8.4 billion, which is like um, 
with that money, we could easily house and feed and clothe and educate and support migrants, all the migrants who um, are seeking asylum and refuge. So just this idea of, you know, who follows the rule, who doesn't follow the rule, whose case is credible, whose case isn't credible. From a larger perspective, um, it's all bullshit. And um, I understand, obviously, as an immigration attorney, that you, you do actually have to advocate for your clients in a way that, you know, is in compliance with the laws that are written. But also as somebody who doesn't practice the law, I get to say like, um, and you can too, obviously, but yes. you know, I, I don't have to, uh, I, I don't, I, I, I don't want any of us to feel, to make that normal, um, to make right. any of the, however many codes there are for immigration law, um, mm -hmm. none of it should be considered as normal because it was all written out of, um, uh, out of anti-blackness, out of capitalism, out of imperialism, out of white supremacy. So it isn't it isn't something that should be respected by any of us and it absolutely should not be upheld. Um, so that's to answer that. And um, you also brought up, you know, different treatment for black migrants. Absolutely. I mean, um, <laughs> You can almost always guarantee uh, interpretation, and that's not even the case, but you, you generally can feel more comfortable guaranteeing interpretation for Spanish speakers. Um, anybody who speaks Chui or um, Amharic or Tigrinya or, you know, even a specific dialect, you know, many African migrants can can you know speak English or French, but it's always with a specific uh, dialect. And so, when you, you're not guaranteed that for every Black migrant that comes in through de into detention, um, you're not guaranteed interpretation. On top of that, you're you're not guaranteed. Um, like food that is halal, you're not guaranteed respect um, towards your uh, religious orientation. Um, trans people are often uh, isolated and put in solitary confinement for unspeakable, endless hours on end. And um, this of course is after um, people have already had to you know, risk their lives on rubber boats that are capsizing um, and they've had to spend their entire life's earnings um, on flights to from Africa to South America, only to be confronted all across their trip by racism and language barriers and thieves and unrelenting natural circumstances um, and sickness and crooked officials uh, from many different countries. Um, so then they get, then the lucky people, I guess, uh, get to the border and um, they're already so drained, but then they have to um, repeat their story to whoever captures them along the border. And again, to whoever is you know, hearing their credible fear interviews and again to the judge and again to an immigration attorney. That's if they have an immigration attorney. And um, I just think this system is so uh, 
overwhelmingly um, <laughs> inefficient, and that's the nicest way I could put it. Um, and well, it's not designed to welcome people. It is not designed to welcome people. Absolutely, um, even even people who theoretically the the purported idea of the Refugee Act was to protect people from persecution in their home countries. And um, that's certainly not been happening. And, you know, it's the express goal of this administration to get rid of asylum mm -hmm. completely. I, um, I was guilty of one thing and I just want to go back and say, when I use the term parole, that means a way of getting out of immigration prison. It doesn't mean the same thing that parole means in the criminal law context in the United States, which is a period after serving part of a sentence, getting out kind of on a trial basis under all kinds of rules um, and being subject to being brought back to finish or to continue with more of a prison term. Parole in the immigration context or one of the uses and the one I meant was um, a way to get out of an immigration prison to pursue your claim for asylum or whatever relief you're looking for while outside of the immigration prison. And um, uh, it doesn't imply anything about any criminality whatsoever, um, but it's a decision that only ICE can make. Um, it's not even a decision that an immigration judge can make. So, um, and it's been my experience that um, African asylum seekers don't get parole. That's just been my experience, you know, one by one by one, one by one, um, even when they are absolutely no danger to anybody. Um, and so you're saying that that's not just something that happens in Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi, but happens all over the country. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I can think of hundreds of examples, but I want to highlight uh, that when I first started organizing, I remember the first deportation defense case that like I supported um, and we were creating a grassroots campaign around a person and they eventually were given bond, um, I think for $5,000. And at that time I was like, wow, that is a lot of money. This is flat out ransom of our people. Um, and then I started organizing with Undocu Black Network and BLMP. And it's been a long time since I've seen a $5,000 bonder for all amount. I basically only see 40,000, 30,000, 50,000. Um, you know, and then there was even that very uh, uh, infamous case of 21 Savage being detained. And I think, you know, he had a $200,000 bond. Um, so we definitely see, uh, you know, uh, a difference between how black migrants are extorted versus non-black migrants. Um, and that's not even to say the racism they experience in detention. That's just, you know, how an immigration judge deems them a quote unquote flight risk. And so this idea of, you know, does someone have a criminal record or not? Does someone seem like they could be a flight risk or not? Um, that determines the amount you're allowed to set as their ransom. Um, that's also racist. I mean, you know, I think of um, this brother who I've known for 
a couple years, he was detained in Etowah after having been actually not migrating to the United States, but being extradited into the United States. Um, he was on like a $1,000 wire fraud charge, um, but they wanted him to give up all these people's names back home. And um, they detained him in federal prison in Texas for uh, eight years and then released him to immigration detention where he spent another three years. Um, he's a brother from West Africa and um, he was deported last month and um, to a country he actually didn't even have um, citizenship in because he had had to renounce his citizenship so that the government didn't keep uh, chasing and killing his family members, which they had already killed his father and brother as a result of what they assumed to be cooperation with the United States. And um, he renounced his citizenship and ICE last month forged his uh, travel documents so that they could deport him. They actually reported him as cargo um, to oh be able to, yeah, uh, deport him. And it was a very, uh, violent process and he was and he's still to this I mean you know I'm still in contact with him but he's still not safe um he's having to live in he might be free from detention and deportation I guess proceedings but um his life is very much so still in danger given how much worse how much more intense these phenomena are every day what keeps you going and what gives you hope? Um, yeah, you know, I guess my faith is restored by, um, by all the, the, the people, my faith in like our ability to win and gain momentum has been affirmed by all of the displays of, of people, displays of solidarity and people clamoring to answer the call to fight for black lives and actually like fight for black lives. Um, the May uprisings uh, installed and renewed a lot of faith in me um, because it applied pressure. Um, it, it, it really put a lot of people on their toes that uh, you can't keep, um, literally or figuratively stepping on a people's neck and then yeah keep getting away with it um yeah all all of the protesters who took to the streets um and took many risks i appreciate all of them um uh yeah i mean it would be so foolish of us to, and naive and ahistorical of us to depend on um, Supreme Courts or uh, members of Congress or presidents of this country in particular to defend our rights, the rights of poor people, the rights of the working class, the rights of um women or queer and trans people. Um, it would be so ahistorical for us to depend on those entities for, for our livelihoods and lives. So um, 
our rights will only ever come alive when when we organize, when we protest, when we boycott, when we strike, when we rebel, when we actually actually like uh, disobey the law um, in order to uphold justice. And so that restores my faith and hope all the time. Um, historical accounts of that and seeing it in present day restores my faith. Deborah, thank you so much. This has been um, really, I've learned a lot and I very much appreciate your um, sharing some of your really incredible knowledge with us and we will be in more touch. And thank you so very much. Thank you, Virginia. I appreciate the invite and um, this conversation so much. And always you. I appreciate you. You've been listening to First They Came for the Immigrants, a new podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to give us a rating and review, which helps people find the podcast. Our audio was produced by Avi Hurwitz, who also performed the music at the introduction to the podcast. Outro music by progressive social justice rock band Swerve Left. Find us on Facebook and be sure to like us and follow us there. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.